from the National Race and Capitalism Project, welcome to season four of New Dawn, a podcast focusing on the intersection of race and capitalism, its theories, geographies, and histories, with your host, Michael Dawson. This event is brought to you by the Race and Capitalism Project and the Center for the Study of Race, Politics, and Culture. Joining me today are Rhea Boyd, Arisha Martinez-Cardoso, and Brandy Summers to discuss the impact of COVID-19 and structural racism on our communities. Dr. Boyd works clinically at the Palo Alto Medical Foundation and teaches nationally on the relationship between structural racism and equity and health, and has a decade of experience advancing community-based advocacy. She leads efforts to characterize and address the child and public health impacts of harmful policing practices and policies. She serves as the Chief Medical Officer of San Diego 211, working with navigators to address social needs of San Diegans impacted by chronic illness and poverty. And she's the Director of Equity and Justice for the California Children's Trust, an initiative to advance mental and just mental health, excuse me, access to children and youth across California. Dr. Martinez Cardoso, PhD, is a public health researcher and provost doctoral fellow at the University of Chicago. Her research integrates theoretical perspectives from the social sciences with epidemiological methods in public health to examine how social inequality in the US shapes population health with a particular focus on the health of racial and ethnic groups and immigrants. Majority of her work focuses on how race, migration, and class intersect to shape the health of US born and immigrant exits across the life course. Professor Summers is an assistant professor of geography and global metropolitan studies at the University of California, Berkeley. Her research examines urban cultural landscapes and the political and economic dynamics by which race and space are reimagined and reordered. She's the author of Black in Place, The Spatial Aesthetics of Race in a Post-Chocolate City, which explores how aesthetics and race converge to locate or map blackness in Washington, D.C. Thank you all for contributing your time and energy toward this conversation. I hope to discuss the ways that COVID-19 has unraveled racial and ethnic communities across America. And the first question I have is I want everybody to maybe give us a very brief perspective of what are some of the factors we may not be paying enough attention to and how various forms of inequality are, are, are shaping the response COVID-19, and I'll start with Dr. Boyd. Hi, y'all. Thank you so much for having me. It's such an honor to be on this panel and have this discussion today. I think from my perspective as somebody who works in healthcare, one thing that we often miss is how much healthcare as a system and an industry in this country contributes to racial inequality and economic inequality. Um, I often kind of cite um, Don Berwick, who is uh, a preeminent public health and health policy mind who worked under the Obama administration and CMS, who often says that every system is designed to achieve exactly the results it gets. And I use that quote to say that racial health inequities, right, all of the gaps that are emerging in mortality rates for African Americans particularly, but also indigenous Americans, Latinx Americans, native Hawaiian Pacific Islander Americans during COVID-19, are not a malfunction of our health system. It's not our health systems working improperly. It's not a glitch. This is actually a sign that our systems 
are working as intended. And once you understand that, then we have to ask questions about what does that mean? And part of what that means is that we have healthcare systems that profit off of inequality. One example I commonly use is the insurance market in the United States. The insurance market creates a tiered healthcare system where you essentially pay for the level of care and quality of care that you receive. For individuals who can't pay into that system, we've also seen that the insurance market racially segregates our healthcare system so that those who cannot pay tend to predominantly be black and brown folks across the United States. If you can't pay into the system and you can't access care supports, particularly like right now during a pandemic, that certainly undergirds the racial health inequities that we see emerging. But too often I hear clinicians and public health experts say, you know, but what can we do about racism? You know, how do we actually address racism? And I think the goal is to actually look in our own house and look at our own business models, like the example we used around insurance, to say, how are we actually gleaning economic rewards from systems of inequality in our society? So I'm excited to talk more about that today. Thank you. Dr. Martinez Cardoso? Yeah, thank you for having me. And it's really a pleasure to be in conversation with you all. And Rio really kicked it off. One thing that I will say, and I don't want to make light of the situation, is I'm a public health scholar. And often people don't know what public health practitioners and researchers and interventionists do. And we only have a pandemic, one every hundred years. And this was our opportunity to step up as public health folks and to contribute to important conversations and dialogue around inequities that shape our system and our world. And not to talk badly of all of my colleagues who are epidemiologists and tracking COVID and the response and working in public health departments and state departments and advising our leaders, but I really do think that as public health practitioners, we miss the mark in being able to respond appropriately to COVID in seeing the disparities before they came um, and reacting very kind of post hoc um, to many of the disparities that emerged. Um, because those of us who do study racial inequities in health saw these disparities coming early, early on and knew that they were gonna happen when we started to see many of the public health interventions and policies and practices that were rolled out in response to the pandemic. So I think now though, uh, it is our responsibility as public health practitioners and researchers, myself included, to call out these inequities and call out these systems that Rhea pointed out that have been built into our nation's uh, history, um, our medical system, our social and economic systems, our political systems that created these disparities in the first place. And so although the pandemic has been challenging and the kind of protests and all of the things that have happened over the past few weeks have also been challenging to our nation, I'm optimistic because I'm seeing a lot of conversations now um, not from the sidelines of public health, but really central to the field um, in thinking about racism as a public health issue, as police brutality as a public health issue, as capitalism and economic precarity as a public health issue, and housing, right? All of these things that many of us who've focused on social inequalities have been talking about for a long time, and now it's becoming the forefront of the conversation, and I'm really forward to, to chat about that more today. Thank you. Thank you. Professor Summers. I want to echo um, everyone's thanks and welcome um, to this conversation. I'm excited to be here and especially talking to you brilliant women. Um, so I think um, I definitely want to touch upon some of the 
themes that were discussed earlier. I think what's happening with the pandemic is it's really highlighting structural inequalities in a variety of areas. So not just public health, not just thinking about the medical profession and field. As a geographer, of course, I'm gonna be concerned mostly with these spatial considerations and understanding the ways that racism ends up being spatialized. We see it in the built environment, we see it in various landscapes, but also the ways that this kind of spatialization of race happens at the same time. So while we're seeing a pandemic, you know, it's, it's highlighting these racial disparities in terms of, you know, deaths, um, access to good health care, income distribution, financial aid, uh, specifically to businesses um, through uh, recovery efforts, but also police brutality. And these issues are all really co-constitutive uh, in a lot of ways. So, I think what it's also doing is it's exposing. It's exposing where we have really inequities in all of our major institutions. So that has to do, of course, with thinking about healthcare and thinking about hospitals and thinking about access to healthcare. But also we're seeing um, what's happening uh, with in education and in institutions of higher education um, in our culture industries. And so we're starting to recognize that not only the pandemic, but then also these most recent instances of police brutality that are killing black people, men, women, like that it's exposing what's been happening historically. Uh, in particular, of course, you know, I, I think about the ways that the spatial conditions really do work to contain black and brown people. And we've been doing this for a very long time. So ultimately, you know, as I think in my work and as I'm continuing to ponder these questions, I'm imagining the ways the state is still interested in protecting white capital and protecting white bodies and white movement and freedom. We're seeing this in the ways that states are reopening, but then are now choosing to close again um, based on the alarming metrics that we're starting to see in terms of the transmission of the disease. So I think for me, um, what ends up being most important is the everyday violence of it and the intimacy of it as well. Um, we're starting to see that, you know, this intimate violence against brown, brown and black populations is, is really um, so everyday, but because it's being visible in the mainstream, folks are just now coming to it. So I want us to kind of deal with how quotidian this issue really is, despite the fact that, you know, again, it happens every hundred years, a pandemic happens every hundred years. It's exposing what, what we really experience every day. Mm -hmm. I want to build off of what, what uh, Trisha Saris just said. One of the themes of the panel that we were asked to address is how does the response to the pandemic um, get shaped by anti-Blackness and I would add anti-immigrant sentiment policies and practices. So I know all three of you work on that. Maybe you could talk a little bit about it among yourselves and uh, help us understand how that works. So one of the, I can kick it off. Uh, one of the most recent data sets I found most disturbing looked at the racial and ethnic disparities um, by age group. So coming into this pandemic, you know, the risk factors that public health experts and the media propagated as what shaped the communities that we should be most concerned about were things like underlying conditions, poverty, and age. And what we found as the pandemic continued is that this pandemic is taking a particular toll on black folks, right? Like overall black folks have the highest mortality rate, two times, more than two times that of any other racial and ethnic group. 
We know that black folks who live in majority black counties, if you live in a segregated majority black county, your mortality rate is six times that of those who live in majority white counties. And that because of that, one in every 1,500 black folks in this country have died from COVID-19. So it's taken an enormous toll on black folks. And when the study looked at age in particular, it found that the mortality gap is actually the widest between black and white folks aged 35 to 44, where black folks are nine times more likely to die, nine times. And if you go to the age bracket one, 10 years below, black and white folks aged 25 to 34, they're 7.3 times more likely to die from COVID-19 if you're black. So what does that mean? It means that we, even in our public health and healthcare infrastructure, have yet to fully communicate to everyone else how racism and the experience of chronic discrimination actually shapes cellular age, right? So while your chronological age may be relatively young, that is not a good marker for who's most likely to die of COVID-19 when we look specifically at racial and ethnic populations. So one thing I'll say is that we have to be focusing on younger ages in populations exposed to the chronic stress of discrimination and racism because they actually have the largest mortality gaps. And that's really concerning and it should change our public messaging. You're not simply saying wear a mask for your grandparents, you're saying wear a mask for your coworkers, wear a mask for your peers, wear a mask for your parents, wear a mask for your you know, young adult um, siblings. Like, this is affecting all of us in a way that we haven't fully um, acknowledged. And I think that's part of what racism does. It separates black folks out of the mutually inclusive public space. And I'm sure Dr. Summers can speak to this more, but I'll just say, when we separate black folks out, then we also don't appropriately message and target our public health interventions because we shouldn't just be targeting the elderly. We absolutely need to think about younger populations of black and Latinx folks. Well, those numbers are alarming, <laughs> especially to fall within that age group um, and really be considerate of that. Um, and thank you for that context, Dr. Boy, because you know, I'm often thinking about it in terms of the histories of segregation that uh, we've experienced in this country that haven't gone away. Um, and so actually I was reading just this morning and, and getting upset again on Twitter about um, a um, public housing community in Washington, D.C., where I've done uh, my research before, in particular, it's the um, Kelly Miller Houses in D.C., which is right behind Howard University. And there has been essentially an outbreak um, of folks with COVID and those who have died um, in that particular housing unit. And the housing authority has not been responsive at all in terms of cleaning um, the hallways and other public spaces. But also, you know, the state holds people accountable for taking care of themselves and making sure they, you know, don't come in contact with other people. You know, again, having these particular rules and asking people to abide by rules without holding up their end of the bargain. And so we're starting to see all these ways that this is still the same, uh, this similar form of policing, right? Where you're targeting people, where you're targeting groups who oftentimes live in multi-generational homes, who are of lower income and are more susceptible because of the stressors that you mentioned. Um, and because we're coming into contact with people based on our need to go out and make money and provide for our families. And so it's, it's, it's this legacy um, that's not new, 
that's certainly being exacerbated by a pandemic. We already had these health disparities that we knew about prior to this moment, but again, we're able to kind of expose the ways that it's related to other issues that are that really kind of have a lot to do with housing, that have a lot to do with, again, policing, have a lot to do with our ability to get a good job, our ability to get good and healthy, fresh food. We're seeing, I'm seeing ways, actually, it's so interesting how, um, Farmers markets are open um, in a lot of places. And so we're encouraging folks not only to buy fresh foods um, from farmers markets, but also potentially grow. But there's a certain level of privilege that comes with that ability, right? Or at least to be able to afford some of the food that's being sold, in addition to being able to take the care and grow food um, for yourself and for your family. And so again, I wanna really point to these particular legacies that we have in terms of these the way we've patterned housing, the way we've patterned um, opportunities for jobs to have people live securely um, with their homes and their families. Yeah, to echo both of uh, Brandy and Rhea's comments, um, you know, it's quite stark how these systems have been set up in place and yet we see them kind of morph and Frankenstein to again, um, kind of send the message about the disposability, right, of black bodies in particular, and then brown bodies as well. Um, and so we see that narrative play out in just different ways during the pandemic. What for me, I've been really struck with is the paradox facing black and brown folks as they deal with the pandemic. And by that, I mean, um, we see this paradox in that uh, black and brown folks are considered essential workers more and more often, right? And it's not that they as people are essential, right? It's their work is essential. And I think this is an important um, kind of uh, line that we need to follow. It's not that they are important as people, right? Those people are replaceable and somebody else can come tomorrow and be the DoorDash delivery driver or the farm worker or whatever, right? Um, the, the fact that they are a person doesn't matter. It's the work that is essential, not the person. And I find that really troubling, particularly because it is upper middle class, middle class and white families who are depending on those bodies to protect themselves from the pandemic. And the fact that folks aren't reflecting on that is egregious. Um, and the, uh, then the other paradox is that yet we know, and one thing that keeps me up is that it is black women for specifically who have borne the brunt of the economic decline of the pandemic, right? So we know that the black women, but based on a whole host of surveys that are still kind of early on are gonna bear the brunt, the economic brunt of the pandemic after um, we, you know, we emerge from stay at home orders and things like that. And so, not only are black and brown families and people kind of bearing the brunt now in terms of their health and economic costs, but what keeps me up at night is what's gonna happen after people have resumed and go back to school and engage in their Sunday brunches and Target opens up, you know, who's gonna be left behind after all of this is over, not only economically, but also health-wise. Um, we still don't know what's gonna happen to people who have had COVID, what are the health tolls on their bodies, um, and then, we don't know who has delayed care. Um, and we know that black and brown folks are more likely to do, delay care, don't engage in the healthcare system for a number of different reasons and perhaps aren't or will not no longer after the pandemic. And so we see these systems again and again, um, you know, start from one shock, but then the ripple effects are strongest for those who are most vulnerable, including black and brown folks and poor folks in this country. We have a couple of comments. One of the 
I think probably ongoing effects we're going to see among black and brown people is whether we're, uh, people are concerned about ICE surveillance or ordinary police surveillance. People may not want to go to public places to seek out health care because people have been snatched out of jails and other you know, welfare offices, deported or arrested. So that's going to be one of the long-term effects that we'll have to pay quite a bit of attention to. One of the, again, this is a legacy of both colonialism and slavery, is that black folks and brown folks live in the South and Southwest still to a substantial degree. Um, red states that have been to be generous cavalier in how they've treated public health in, in those states. Um, what do you expect a differential impact between different regions of the country and how would that affect communities of color? Absolutely. I mean, if you just go to the New York Times website right now and look at the map that they have for COVID hotspots, which are areas in this country where there are clusters of high rates of infection, it basically maps exactly to the southeast United States, which are areas that are predominantly where African Americans and Latinx Americans live in this country. Um, what does that mean? It means those are also areas where states have chosen to to divest in public programs that would support the population health of those communities. What are examples? The Southeast United States include the 14 states that have yet to expand Medicaid. If you have an expanded Medicaid, right, your state doesn't have access to state-sponsored insurance for poor members of your um, population, um, which certainly shapes healthcare access during the pandemic, access to testing, access to hospitalization. If folks can't afford that care, they might not go use that care. Um, and there's good data about that. Um, the Southeast United States were the states that were the slowest to close. That same New York Times link, I think it's called Coronavirus Map. I search it constantly. I think it's a really helpful visual source. We'll show you how states closed down beginning in March. And the Southeast United States were the slowest to close, the earliest to reopen, to prematurely, I will say, reopen, uh, because they are also the states now that have the highest rates um, of increasing infections. And then they're also the states that tend to lack paid sick leave. They lack mandated protections that might um, help essential workers be able to stay home if they're not well. So essentially there are states where people are coerced into working when they otherwise should be home for themselves or their families, which spreads COVID inside of um, laboring populations. So I think states that have not taken on the health of their populations through regulation are absolutely the states that are suffering the most. and. You know, I'm not a historian here, but I'll pose it to the rest of y'all about what that means in terms of the longtime fight between states' rights and federalism, between who's going to be the ones to protect your populations and who's going to deny those protections once your population has a significant number of folks who are Black specifically, who are, you know, freed slaves specifically, but also over time who are Black and Brown. Um, and that's been the, South, the Southeast. Um, and I think it's a confrontation we all need to have because once you, the last thing I'll say is once you start to say that we will deny kind of these population level supports because of our demographics in our population, that hurts everyone's health. It's not just that African Americans, although we have the highest mortality rate by far, are the only ones dying. 
white folks are dying of COVID too in these same states that have increasing rates. And that also is incredibly concerning and something that we all should be confronting as a public health infrastructure. Uh, thank you for that context too, because you know, even as we imagine where black and brown people, specifically black people um, in the South and, and Southwest are residing, that they have already been dealing with this history of environmental racism as we kind of think about the importance of, you know, the industrial economy um, that was built up in these regions, right? And so it's it's funny because not funny, haha, but ironic that there have been so many instances also in the North and West that seem to mirror what's happening in the South. So like, you know, was it a few months ago that there was the Crawford power plant in Chicago where they uh, did the scheduled demolition of it and it kind of released this cloud of dust in Little Village in, in Chicago, which was prim primarily a Latinx population there in the midst of a pandemic that affects your lungs, right? And so you're breathing in these cloud, this cloud of dust um, as we're dealing with a global pandemic that's killing people based on, you know, pneumonia type symptoms. And so to imagine things like this are happening in the North and the Midwest, but that also have been happening for years in the South is just very much, a, it gives us a clue of what's been happening for so long um, and what will continue to happen unless we stop it. And again, connect what's going on. So these aren't exceptional instances. They are things that have been happening for some time. It's certainly the case on the West Coast, thinking about Bayview Hunters Point in San Francisco and thinking about um, the ways that various, you know, demolition sites specifically in that area, how we are seen as essentially products of waste, right? So where there's toxic waste in the ground, it's kind of as if we are being seen as waste as well. And so there's a scholar um, at UC Santa Cruz, Lindsay Dillon, who's talked about that specifically as it relates to Bayview Hunters Point, but thinking about the ways that we can be removed and remediated if we just kind of be, if we're put aside, and then we can deal with the environmental conditions and, and fix them. And that's what seems to be happening with COVID, that we're not necessarily dealing with the underlying structural inequalities related to health, related to, again, all these other income disparities, et cetera, but instead, it's as if we're not focused on these issues because it's mostly Black and Brown people who are dying. And so as long as we can kind of get the waste out of the way, then we can deal with what's really going on, which is, again, to allow people to roam freely. I'll give you one last example. And I know I haven't been dealing with the South, but also in Oakland. So there was... Um, high school um, in Oakland, McClyman's High School that had to shut down in West Oakland because there was toxic waste that was found in the ground. And so again, this isn't related to COVID. So they had to shut down prior to COVID because of the toxic waste. So now there are questions as to whether some of the students, a couple of whom have died since graduation, whether that was tied to the toxic chemicals that were in the ground where these mostly black and brown high school students go. And so it's these types of issues that again, the COVID pandemic highlights. It, it's not new, but it's something that's enabling us to understand this very intricate but plain history that has primarily targeted Black and Brown people and really set us up to be waste, to be put away, and potentially to die. So those are the types of, I guess, issues as it relates not only just in terms of this regional question, but certainly around the entire country. Yeah, I think my panelists have shared some like really interesting things. You know, one thing that that brings to mind um, Michael's question about the South. We also know the South is right, like the Black Belt is um, kind of the highest rates of cardiovascular disease, 
um, and strokes and things like that. Um, and there's a lot of interesting work looking at, you know, the history of lynching and which counties have a, hard, a higher history of lynching and how that is still reverberates today and continues to create, and we continue to see disparities in black health relative to white health in those places. And reappointed to a lot of the mechanisms by which those things are happening and continued disinvestment in those communities. But I also wonder if we can think about what is more the ideological legacy, right, of those black belt areas, areas that were formerly um, kind of highly uh, slavery areas in the South, as well as kind of in the West that were colonized. Um, and what are the ideologies that persist within those places to create and perpetuate the policies in those places? Um, and then the other thing that comes to mind from what Brandy spoke was also thinking about, and, and Rhea spoke about, I wonder if we can start to imagine like more radical futures in these places, right? And thinking about solidarity building with poor white folks who are also being left behind in this economy, small business owners who were left out of the CARES Act, like all of these other folks who, um, while we're here talking about black lives as they're affected by the pandemic and brown lives and Latinx lives that are affected by the pandemic, how there's also links to systems that have been maintained so that we don't see our struggles as aligned and thinking about how we can call those folks in to fight with us because they also will experience some of the benefits. I was on a panel the other day that was like, what if we imagined when we, there's no like lift all boats policies, right, in this country, right? Like the CARES Act created more wealth for billionaires than it did for kind of middle America and poor America. But what if we imagined, right, economic policies or pandemic policies that targeted, like, for example, Black women, because there's a lot of evidence that policies that target Black women do, in fact, lift all boats, right? And so can we think about imagining radical futures after this is over that would move us forward uh, against some of these ideologies and policies that we've been operating against for so long? One of the uh, points that someone made early is that you think about capitalism as a public health problem. And there's two recent examples. The one that's directly related to COVID is the insistence by political officials and corporate officials reopened the meat packing plants and those quickly became centers of, of these of clusters of disease and they didn't open up those plants for the benefit of the workers uh, on the line they opened it up for upper middle class folks who could get their uh, pork chops in, in the supermarket the other one is a story i think i read yesterday um, where a massive taiwanese plant i think it's plastic manufacturer is about to put a plant in louisiana and Cancer alley that A is on the burial grounds of slaves, but B in an area where the black residents of the of that area are already dying in horrific races from all sorts of environmental related uh, diseases. And as many of you have pointed out, those are the type of areas where, uh, whether it's Oakland and McClymans or in Chicago and Little Village, that massive uh, problematics in terms of accentuating the morbidity associated with, with COVID-19. Several of you have started talking about short-range and long-range solutions, and the question I have is, given the horrific racist leadership at the national level from the Trump administration, but also in many states and local areas, what's the type of organizing practices and policies that communities should be thinking about to deal with 
these problems where we're talking about either, uh, I mean, there's obviously a massive amount of organizing around police brutality. What type of um, organizing is also going on around trying to address the horrific toll of COVID? A lot of what we're seeing right now is this opportunity to dismantle, to reimagine and rebuild. And so I think that we actually have to follow through. So we're starting to see a lot of calls for not only the defunding of police, um, for example, but also abolishing police. As a result, we're seeing institutions break their ties to police uh, departments in a variety of cities around the country. And while that might not seem related to COVID, um, there are certainly ways in which the police are used to, again, target more vulnerable populations and potentially put them in harm's way. So we're seeing videos of police officers not wearing masks and detaining black and brown people or ticketing them for not wearing a mask while they're not wearing masks at the same time, pulling them off of buses, trains, et cetera, pulling them out of their cars. And so when we see these calls for defunding the police, it's not necessarily just to get rid of the police or at least defang the beast, it's more so to put those funds into other programs that actually can provide good service for people. So that does include the ability for people to have access to good health care. We need to also require that states or also municipalities and um, counties provide testing. Like just, just allow people to get tested. <laughs> To me, that's just such a simple solution. But you know, if if the question is around cost, then it's it's rearranging the budget, calling an emergency meeting to rearrange the budget so that you can have those funds go towards something as basic as getting people tested. And then we can deal with treatment, right? And so I recognize the ways in which it's going to take quite some time to actually get a vaccine going. And then the, the, the concept of distributing the vaccine and who gets access to the vaccine first, we already know how that's gonna play out. So we can try to work towards those, what the mess that that's going to be then. But also imagine these types of things taking place at the same time as we're making calls for equitable housing for folks. And so locally in the Bay Area, you're starting to see the effects of the Moms for Housing uh, movement. In particular, they're focusing on policy and Sacramento to change where there is a um, TOPA Act um, being thrown around, the Tenants Opportunity to Purchase Act, which originally started in D.C. Uh, in, I believe, the late 70s, early 80s, but now is being brought up um, and discussed as we think about the unhoused population, specifically in the Bay Area, which is ridiculous, as we know, but then also thinking about how we have to have adequate and affordable housing for all. So it's not, again, just about healthcare. It also includes these questions of how to get people homes, how to get them safe. If we're talking about social distancing, if we're talking about people staying at home, stay at home orders, you need people to actually have a home. And so those types of, of measures, those types of forms of organizing, it's already happening. So part of it might be if folks are looking for what to do, because you start to see all of these um, toolkits for what can I do, you know, to help other people. Folks are already doing this work. There are already local organizations who are taking part in these struggles that again, didn't just start over the last six months. 
these issues have been have persisted. And so if you start to look again at what's happening in your city, in your neighborhood even, get involved in those activities. Because I again, it's not just this exceptional moment. It's more so understanding how we can really dismantle all of these systems of oppression that have been going on and that other people are spending their time, money, and, and just sweat to fix for the rest of us. One quick note is a direct link in Chicago and everywhere else between mass incarceration and COVID. The, the biggest hotspot in Chicago is Cook County Jail. Brutal policing and surveillance has led directly to an explosion of COVID in those communities. And not just that, they're actually not providing accurate information, right? We're not hearing about the outbreaks of COVID in various places. That's happening in a variety of uh, prisons around the country um, where we're not, the public is not learning how the spread is rapidly kind of happening and killing people. So not only are we not having access to accurate information, we really should be letting people out of jail right now. We should be letting them out of prison instead of essentially keeping them in petri dishes or, you know, and having them essentially be at, at higher risk than they were previously. Yeah, on that note, thinking about prisons, um, I'm from rural California, where a lot of the major employer in the state is prisons and jails. And they employ a lot of uh, Latinx, right? Our uh, folks are the, what are they, correctional officers and probation officers. And some of the counties that are experiencing heightened cases of COVID are due to transmissions from jails that have been now like spread to the community, right? From those same um, correctional officers. And so I imagine, I wonder what, I'm not part of those organizing circles, but I wonder if there could be some sort of, um, engagement around work and thinking about decarceration because there are collateral consequences for communities. Um, because when those jails leave, right, there is no longer an economic base, right? And that's, that's a problem that the economic base of these communities depends on jails, right? And uh, that's kind of what they're dependent on for. I will also say like to Michael's comment, there's been such a profound lack of leadership um, in the pandemic from like the federal level and then states and lo local authorities and leaders are kind of, it's very hodgepodge what kind of leadership there is. And as a result though, I, I find it incredibly optimistic that communities, communities have and continue to organize themselves. Um, and so there's a lot of um, amazing kind of mutual aid work that is being done, a lot of work um, distributing food and thinking about housing um, that is coming from very grassroots places. And so thinking about how to um, build and maintain on some of the, all of that organizing the work that is being done and people uh, creating the solutions for themselves in their own communities and how we can leverage those networks and communities and the work that's already being done. Um, you know, a lot of the work that was done around um, early on around like dismantling ice, for example, and like uh, abolishing ice was super radical like a few years ago. People couldn't imagine that ice could be abolished. And now you see it all over the place, right? Like abolish ice. And so thinking about, there's a lot of calls right now to defund police, to abolish prisons that seem quite radical to so many people, but there are there's a legacy of um, calls to uh, dismantle many of these systems. And so thinking about how we can do that now. Um, so I'll turn it over to my, to my panelists. I'll also say, I think when we're thinking about solutions, we have to champion solutions 
that address these intersecting forms of violence that are shortening black lives. And that's what I think we're all describing, that police violence, right, shortens black lives for that victim and for all of the witnesses. There's evidence um, that at the state level, if police kill one unarmed black American in your state, it affects the mental health of every other black American who lives in that state. There's a paper that just came out literally this morning from Dr. Ali Sewell, who is some of the goat of the research. She's like the greatest on the research about policing and physical health and mental health. And she just released a paper on her website today that I already tweeted out that basically says that um, police violence also affects the physical health of folks who live in neighborhoods where police kill black Americans. And that that's a particularly strong exposure for black women who then have higher rates of diabetes and obesity and hypertension as a result of the lethality of surveillance in their neighborhood. So we know police violence certainly contributes to health conditions. We also know that, you know, and the public health infrastructure told us this at the beginning, having underlying conditions increase your risk of severity for COVID. So police violence can create underlying conditions. And we know that our health system underserves those conditions for black folks, particularly if you live in the Southeast United States, then we also have a setup for why those populations are disproportionately affected by COVID. But we also have to think about the intersecting violence of inequitably distributing supports, like withholding supports and neglecting communities when we know you are disproportionately affected. For example, as Dr. Summers said, like we need to universally test. That we don't have universal testing in segregated, racially segregated neighborhoods and communities in this country is a form of structural racism. You don't just test whoever presents, you test who's most likely to be affected. You test populations that are overwhelmingly affected. We can use the example of prisons. Eight out of 10 of the largest clusters of COVID-19 in this country have been in correctional facilities. And while we probably, I agree, don't know the full extent of it, that is enough evidence right there to universally test every single person in a prison and jail and release those who, right, who no longer need to be there. And many of us feel many of them do not need to be there. Right. So we have to think about that intersecting form of violence. And the last one I wanted to touch on is we have to think about what it means. Many of you have talked about the disposability of the workforce. I also want to frame that as like an exclusion from the workforce, that if you can constantly be entered into and taken out of the workforce based on what is profitable for large corporations, that is really a form of exclusion from consistent access to living wages. And if that disproportionately affects black folks, as we know it chronically has, African-Americans have long had the longest unemployment rate of any population in this country. Their unemployment rate is currently 16.8, which is going up, not down, as the federal government said. Although the national rate is going down, if you look just at African-Americans, it's up 0.1% since April. And there was that great New York Times paper that gave us gave a chart, I love charts, that basically showed that more than half of black adults have lost their job as a result of this pandemic, right? That should not just be a, we shouldn't just conceptualize that as a form of disposability. That's a form of systematic exclusion. You were never held well in this system if when the pandemic struck, you could just be immediately fired. And so I think we also have to think about that as another intersecting form of violence, because it means that communities don't have at their 
disposal the economic resources such that they could procure supports for themselves. And so black folks disproportionately rely on public systems for these reasons and public systems are failing and neglecting them. It's those intersecting forms of violence that we have to address. So what are things we can do? Quickly, I think healthcare systems need to share PPE. And I know that sounds radical and crazy, but let me just say why I think that's true. One, we know our healthcare industry is predominantly white at every single level, from student to CEO, right? If our industry is predominantly white and our nation has said we are going to prioritize our industry, the healthcare industry, and our workers, healthcare workers, for PPE, that means we have selectively decided that our predominantly white industry is the only one worthy of protections in their workplace, despite the fact that we're not the only ones who have risks in our workplace. So we, as a healthcare system, need to share PPE. We need to collectively negotiate with workers and laborers and other essential supply chains so that they also have a share of PPE that we do. And I say this knowing that limited that we have limited PPE stores. That's exactly why we need to do it. I'll also say we need to universally test in segregated communities. And I think I had one more, one more, protest. Protest, protest, protest. We as a healthcare infrastructure have got to support protesters. I've been trying to say this everywhere, but protest is a vital public health intervention. Why? Because protest has been the mechanism by which we secure greater equality in this country. Should it be the only mechanism? Absolutely not. But is it what we've required as a nation historically for black and brown folks to be out in these streets basically you know, being victims of brutality for us to say, oh gosh, what's happening to you is horrific. We should grant you more rights. That's our history. And because that's our history, we now have to support protesters who are rising up about the intersecting forms of violence and racism that are threatening all black lives and really all of our lives at this point. So having medics at protest stations, passing out free masks, making sure first aid is available, hand sanitizer, all of that. You could even just openly test people at protest sites. Why don't we just have free testing when you show up to a protest? These are things that are doable in a wealthy country like the United States. And because the, con because the theme of this is racial capitalism, we all know that it's capitalism and racism that's keeping us from doing it. So that's what we need to confront. A couple of quick points. One of the strongest programs that the Black Panther Party did that wanted mass support was the free, the free clinics they opened. And they did have uh, doctors volunteer at various protests um, in the late 60s and 70s. And we are talking about long-term struggle and protests, not just the moment, as several of you pointed out. Um, black and brown communities never recovered economically. There's a lot of uh, papers on this, the 2007-2008 uh, recession. So it, these communities are just going to go deeper economically. And part of the violence of mass incarceration is the subversion of black and brown political power. Uh, Tracy Birch is a political scientist at Northwestern University has a, a paper where she shows that mass incarceration really suppresses voter turnout in, in the communities from where, where there's high levels of incarceration. For one reason, the resources, we don't have these public resources is because our communities are underrepresented from, through a variety of mechanisms, including the act, active voter suppression being attempted. We have one question from the audience. Um, that's very much consistent with the themes that we've been talking about the past 45 minutes. And the question is, how do we intertwine conversations about fighting capitalism through all these other types of struggles, whether around COVID, police brutality, ableism, sexism? How do we start bringing these conversations and these struggles together? 
I mean, to be honest with you, I think a lot of people are having these conversations and showing the ways that the, and actually with Dr. Boyd, everything that <laughs> Dr. Boyd just said, just in terms of the ways in which these intersections are happening and playing out that have been not only systemic, but historical, it's affecting everyone. And so I think it's really important that we look at, for example, consumption. So this whole thing around opening up the economy and opening up uh, different states and, and allowing people to roam freely is really so they can consume. Or even the questions about essential workers, or again, the, the essential labor of workers and whether they are being um, excluded from uh, really work and understanding um, their participation in the economy, whether they're being excluded or not, this is still about consumption. And so again, even if it's not actually going to a grocery store or instead it's using various technologies to get something to you, that's still a form of consumption. And that still keeps the, the economy going in certain ways. So we can think just at, at that particular item, consuming, and see the ways in which there are disparities along all of those different lines that the, um, that the audience member asked or questioned, right? And so I think it, it, we can't have one conversation without the other. And I think there was a point, I can't remember which of you wonderful women said, that we, when you impact Black women, that you essentially benefit everyone's life. When you put metrics or when you put plans together that improve the lives of Black women, then everyone benefits, right? And so of course that's gonna enable us to say, well, what is it about Black women besides the fact that ultimately we end up being most burdened by all of these, not only health, if we think about health disparities, if we think about income disparities, think about education, all these other factors, but the fact that we can touch so many parts of society, so many people in society, if we would just pay attention to what's happening with Black women and, and improve the lives of Black women. Um, one, one element I think, and it's not necessarily pertaining to this question um, that oftentimes does not get discussed are the gender inequities that are happening as a result of COVID. Um, and we're also seeing this in response to um, what's happening in terms of these instances of br police brutality. So be beyond Breonna Taylor, right? And so we know how there have been definitely um, some inconsistencies to be nice about you know who we're going to focus on and whose lives are more important in terms of understanding um, police brutality against black men and those against black women i think we're not necessarily paying attention to one the violence that's occurring at state violence that's occurring against black women but then also what's happening in the home right and so we see the rates of violence that are occurring in people's homes especially since the pandemic that are impacting women particularly women of color and so just to be able to pay attention to again what's happening with black women in particular will help us understand so much of what's going on in society and will enable us to come up with solutions to really impact everyone so consumption huge but then also understand how gender inequities specifically how they impact black women can really shed light on what we can do next one thing I'll just say briefly about that last question is, I think these conversations are happening in some places, but as somebody who works clinically in a large healthcare system that's basically for profit, I don't think it's happening in clinical medicine. And I think it's a harder thing to say. I mean, people are just right now saying that racism affects health, like doctors, right? This is long studied back to Du Bois and before. Like we know racism has affected health for like centuries and yet, we are just now opening and saying it, right? Doctors are taking a knee kind of symbolically in clinics. People are releasing statements about Black Lives Matters that never spoke on police violence before. 
people are saying that you know they want to address racism but what they don't understand is once you say you want to address racism that means you have to address capitalism right and that's the part of the conversation they actively want to ignore because our entire healthcare system is for profit we are deeply invested in capitalism it's part of why i tried to open by saying racial health inequities are a result of that investment um, so I'll leave it there, but I'll want to just shout out the sister's paper, Whitney Laster Pirtle, which essentially was on racial capitalism as a fundamental cause of coronavirus. It's open source and available online. It's a beautifully written paper that also goes further into how our healthcare system is underserving folks because of our own profit motives. We'll put a link on the website too, if people want to get it. That's fantastic. Rhea, you read all of my favorite people. It's just like, <laughs> the other thing, you know, Brandy um, thought about the notion of like consumerism, right? That like leads to all these struggles. I also wonder if we can reclaim the term violence, right? Um, people are so focused on violence, like uh, when the protests happen as being violent and black on black crime as being violence, right? I wonder if we can think about violence as another theme with which within which we, um, ally struggles, right? Because it is certainly violent that you can't be employed. It's violent that you, if you are, for example, differently or di uh, or disabled, differently abled or disabled, you know, you can't walk up into a building. Those are all just systems of violence that happen in different ways. And seeing that as violence due to consumerism or capitalism um, um, and those struggles as being part of something larger. You know, in public health, we talk a lot about this notion of fundamental causes, right? And that you see a health problem, but if you start to unpack the layers, you start to see the fundamental cause of the causes, right? And it's not, we focus so much on the proximal in this country. We think about what is the immediate thing that will solve the problem without thinking about the root causes of things. And so if we start to think about consumerism, violence, capitalism as their root causes, whatever lane we decide to go into, whether it be you know, housing, education, healthcare systems, public health, we, if we have a common language around the causes, we can start to see the ways in which we can work within our own lane to dismantle these systems, but also work across lanes to dismantle these systems. And I think having that common language is really important and we're starting to develop those um, and draw on kind of historical developments and historical work um, to, con to, to make those more contemporary now. Just really quickly, and actually I want to also speak to Whitney Laster Pirtle's um, paper, not only just its brilliance, but the fact that there was a paper that came out after it and didn't cite her. And so when I talk about, when I'm talking about the conversations that are already happening, they are, they're just not being recognized, right? And so I do take that point about these conversations specifically in, in clinical medicine not happening too, because on the one hand, we can have a talk about the ways in which black people and brown people, specifically black people are deemed, you know, that we don't experience pain in the same way, or we can talk about, again, this discrepancy in care, but at the same time, we're not necessarily focusing on the ways that black doctors are not being either hired or they are being marginalized in certain ways or where there are pay gaps. Um, if we think about black staff um, at hospitals, including those that like Rush in Chicago and other locations. And so I, I think that in the academy, certainly we're having, we've been having conversations about racial capitalism. It is astonishing to see the, the term racial capitalism in the New Yorker 
or in the New York Times or in the Washington Post or all these other mainstream outlets. They don't always get it right now, but at the same time, it's interesting to be able to bring up the term and to be able to talk to people about what it means and what implications it has or has had on our society. What I think is most important also that we think about is accountability and ways in which we have to hold institutions accountable. So in the way that they are specifically targeting profit or at least hoping to achieve profit and really accumulate more than they ever needed, what's really important is that if if that's their target, then they need to be hurt in their pockets. Like we need to, so the whole concept of protest certainly spills over to how we spend our money, whether we spend our money buying consumer items or whether we spend it supporting, you know, community groups. It, how do we develop forms of mutual aid that can provide sustenance to people who don't necessarily have it? And again, you know, not spend money in these ways that really contribute to this kind of continuing accumulation that's happening with these large corporations. I certainly, you know, we've had, I thought, a really wonderful conversation about how this COVID pandemic has really impacted so many different parts of our lives. But again, I just go back to kind of where I started and thinking about the spatial elements of this and the ways that this is not just regional, that it's not just in this nation. We're seeing the reverberations all over the world just in terms of how the U.S. and specifically people of color are dealing with these inequities that have ex existed forever. But then at the same time, ways in which people are literally putting their bodies on the line in order to really demand justice. So I'm hopeful that it's not going to stop. I, when I talk again about, you know, institutions and including the media, there are ways in which the mainstream media is not necessarily capturing the beautiful work that's happening on the streets. And the fact that people are still organizing and protesting and producing beautiful work that try to bring different communities together. That, that means we need to look harder because they're not going to show it, but then at the same time to really kind of engage those types of publics. Well, I want to thank the three of you for a wonderful conversation and the engaged scholarship that you have done. And I think that's a very good note to end on. Thank you so much. Please find us at raceandcapitalism.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at racecapitalism to find out more on what's happening with the project.